um, to, to go backwards a little bit, you know, growing up in the South, cannabis was demonized, drugs were demonized. And so, you know, I, I hadn't tried it until, you know, until after college in Chicago. And I finally, you know, got talked into trying cannabis and was like, why has this been demonized so much? Like, I don't understand. And I started doing research and, you know, I started enjoying consuming it and it started to help my anxiety. And, um, then, you know, got, we decided we wanted to get involved in the space, invest as sort of a learning mechanism. And very quickly I learned about all of the injustices of the war on drugs. Um, and these things that I just, you know, had the privilege of not knowing about, um, very deeply. And, you know, I found quickly, like, that is crucial if you're going to be involved in the cannabis industry to be involved in drug policy reform and, you know, getting people out of jail for this plant, um, you know, the, and considering that the laws were so disproportionately enforced by race, like there's just so many aspects of it that made me sick. So, you know, early we invested and tried a bunch of things and Leafless being one of those, and I'll dig into that, but, um, it wasn't long before I cared more about the policy and the criminal justice than the business. Welcome to part one of an extra special couple of episodes of People Are the Answer. We truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Kate Gray, producer and today's guest host. We're here to learn how innovators are creating outsized transformational social impact and to shine a light on all the good happening in the world, often hyper-focused on the negative. Today's episode features our host and creator, Jeffrey M. Zucker, whom I've assisted in multiple ventures over the past seven years. Aside from regularly hosting this podcast, Jeffrey's also an entrepreneur, startup slash nonprofit organization advisor, drug policy and criminal justice reform advocate, and all-around badass philanthropist. Jeffrey and I discuss his growing up in the South and starting his career young at the Carolina Ice Palace, the incredible legacy his parents bestowed on him, and lessons learned while being a young entrepreneur in hospitality. We talk about his work in cannabis, as well as his advocacy work in drug policy and criminal justice reform. We also cover his goals for this podcast and his forthcoming movie, The Late Game, which we failed to mention that in addition to producing, he also acts in. Here's Jeffrey M. Zucker on People Are the Answer. Thanks so much for checking out this episode that is reluctantly about me. I just wanted to add the note that this was recorded before the atrocities of October 7th in Israel, and honestly my my own and many others entire worlds have changed since and you know it's different listening to myself even speak before that but i just wanted to add that caveat in to this episode and uh thanks again for listening and for supporting people are the answer jeff thanks for letting me talk to you into doing an episode on yourself yeah no ha happy to do it and um you know you're not the only one that's requested it over the time that we've been doing this podcast i think you know, I wanted to get a base of content out there, but I think it's helpful to get people to know me and um, learn what I'm up to a little bit more, and that'll add some more depth to future episodes. For sure. And speaking of what you're up to, feel free to hit the little dipper at any point during this recording. Yeah, for sure. No, I know that's worth mentioning. Like, I've contemplating cannabis consumption during my episodes. I don't want to bother any guests or anything, so I haven't really figured that out. Bill Maher smokes joints throughout his podcast, so... You know, it seems like I'm in fair company, but um, yeah, I'm a c frequent cannabis consumer, you know, consume a lot throughout the day. It helps me in a variety of different ways. Happy to go on to that, into that in another episode in more detail or maybe in this one later. But uh, yeah, I mean, I want to show people that 
just cause you consume a lot of cannabis doesn't mean you're a stoner for some people. It, it helps them function like myself. And you know, I'm not, I'm open that I have a lot of anxiety and it's really helpful for that among other things. And, um, the way Seth Rogen put it in his book yearbook, like he talked about how you know he consumes pretty much constantly cannabis and for him, it kind of helps him function in society. And one way he put it is like, you wouldn't, judge someone for needing shoes to go through life. And like for him, he needs cannabis to go through life. And, um, you know, I've certainly known the difference of not consuming anything in the various levels of consumption over the years that I've tried. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, it's an important part of my life that I don't mind people seeing. So I want to get into your background, Jeff, like who you are. We know you're from Charleston, but you're based here in Denver. What's your current role? What motivates you? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm from Charleston. I mean, my current role is like a bunch of things. I do a lot of things. Um, you know, I've mentioned on the podcast, serial entrepreneur, uh, started in residential real estate in college and I've since gotten into, uh, film production, tech, cannabis, hospitality, a variety of things. Um, and these days I am heavily focused on my film production business, um, as well as my work in drug policy and criminal justice reform, and obviously this podcast. Um, so we know that you grew up in Charleston. What was it like? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you asked me what motivates me as well. Um, so you, let's see. In terms of motivation, you know, it's it's really about making the world a better place. And um, that's very cliche, but, you know, we grew up in my family around Takuna Alam, Repair the World in Hebrew, and just try to integrate that into everything I do. That doesn't mean that, like, every decision has to be altruistic. It's just that like in doing good things and treating people well, you know, you're creating impact. So not everything has to be a charitable endeavor. You know, you can make a comedy movie and make people's lives better. And then in terms of, yeah, being from Charleston, uh, it was definitely an interesting place to grow up. You know, I was in the same house from the day I was born to the day I went to college. Um, so I mean, I think stability was, was really nice to have. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, I have older siblings. My sister's six years older. My brother's almost 10 years older than me. And so I kind of got both experiences in terms of being a sibling as well as sort of being an only child. My sister went to college when I was in, I don't know, probably middle school. And, um, so I got both of those angles, you know, being the third child, I also feel like for better or worse, less discipline, you know, less oversight. I, was incredibly independent as a kid and just like always wanted to do my own thing. Like I remember dreaming about getting my license eventually and like the independence that that was going to provide. And, um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of what it was like. And I mean, Charleston, it's, it's different from the rest of the South, but it's still the South and beautiful place to grow up, but just really deep history. Um, and when you grow up in a place like that, you don't, you don't necessarily understand the politics fully because you're in it and there's a lot of influence around you. So I've talked about on other episodes too, just how I felt like it was important to move other places and learn other things, learn the ways that other people saw things and, you know, certainly came out of there when I went to Boston university with some biases, um, that I learned to work through and, you know, have tried to improve upon and, um, so Charleston's just, everyone's so nice. It's known for like the hospitality and the friendliness, but just that the cultural aspect and sy systemic racism there, like it's, it certainly exists. And 
you know, I think I grew up in somewhat of a bubble and didn't necessarily have to pay as much attention to that as, you know, people of color were having to. And um, eventually getting involved in the cannabis industry is what sort of opened my eyes to the cruelty and injustice of the war on drugs and to an extension or an extension from that being just the full insanity of our current criminal justice system. For sure. Yeah, I can definitely appreciate growing up in a place and being taught one thing or another, like having to learn yourself, you know, like maybe this isn't exactly, you know, where I want to be or like what I'm trying to learn about. So that's, I commend you for, you know, branching out. Yeah, no, it's weird. I want to mention too, like, I love Charleston. It's awesome. Like it was a great place to grow up. Great people. It's beautiful. It's way too humid. You know, I don't ever want to leave Colorado. Um, in general, just because there's not a lot of humidity here, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a great city overall. I mean, it's certainly, it's grown a little too much, I'd say over the last like 15 years, but, um, you know, certainly somewhere I always plan to visit. Yeah. Actually last summer when, uh, you were shooting the late game, I remember getting off the plane and the humidity just hit me all of a sudden. I was like breathing the weather. It was intense. Um, but moving on, can you think of an experience from your childhood that showed the importance of giving back? Yeah. I mean, obviously like most of these questions are ones that I've asked other people. So I've thought about them before, but this one, like I tend to have a not so specific memory. And so I'm going to try to give a couple of examples, but the one that always immediately comes to mind with this question, I I mentioned it, I think in the first episode of this podcast, talking to Alex Hodera. Um, But, you know, once when I was little, it was the weekend and my brother and sister and I were like piled into my parents' bed watching TV and there was like a charity auction on TV and my dad let us all pick a bunch of stuff and we were so excited. He's like, you know, what do you want? Like, what's what's cool? And so we went with him to pick it up in a trailer and like my specific memory of it isn't that detailed, but a lot. So some of this is coming from like my brother and sister, um, having them having been older, I was pretty young, but you know, he, he got a trailer, we filled it up and then he drove us to the orphanage and we were like, Oh, what are we doing here? And he's like, Oh, you guys thought this stuff was for you? No, I just wanted to know what kids like. And (laughs) so then we got to bring, bring stuff there. And, um, just, you know, I just, I'm so glad that I learned early that there's people in need, you know, having, um, a three-year-old and an almost nine month old, like I want them to know that. And as best I can, you know, without, (laughs) We try not to spoil them, but just as long as we can make them conscious of what's going on and how they can help people, it's so important. And so, you know, that was an early awesome lesson of just like, you don't need the things, everything you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's people out there that don't have the opportunity. And so that was the big one that always comes up for me with this question. And then otherwise, I mean, we were frequently like, doing you know going to um like soup kitchens and cooking dinners and in serving them and um doing a lot of work in the jewish community in charleston and uh, my parents when they weren't working they were so frequently busy with their philanthropic efforts and you know not just money like they gave their time as much or more than anyone and um, I'll know I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but, and I know we're going to talk about my dad, but just, this makes me think like in terms of giving, you know, they say, try to give your time, talent and treasure. And, you know, my parents have always given all of that. 
And my dad did the principal for a day, um, I think a handful of times, but it was really impactful for him. Um, the high school by his office, North Charleston High School. And he would take it really seriously. Like, I have the chance to create impact at this school in the day, whereas, you know, according to the people there, most people that were doing principal for the day is just like, yeah, fun thing to do. Like, see the school? Yeah, they'll help some people. But, you know, he, like, took it seriously and would, like, try to make changes. And um, so that I kind of look back to that when I'm getting involved in any work that I care about. It's just like, don't just be there to be there. Right. Did he ever do it at your school? He did not. <laughs> <laughs> that probably would have been a trip. Yeah. Um, speaking of your father, you live by his mission of Tukun Alum, which is repair the world. Um, I think that speaks volumes about who he was and subsequently who you are. Um, for those of us who weren't lucky enough to have had the opportunity to meet him, can you tell us more about him? Yeah. Um, let's see. My dad was Jerry Zucker, and he was born in Israel. You know, his parents moved to Israel um, toward the early side of the development of World War II. And, you know, most of their family perished in Poland, but fortunately his parents made it to Israel. And um, my dad was born in Israel and, uh, you know, his parents fought in the war for Israel's independence. And uh, when he was around three, they moved uh, to the U.S. Um, through Ellis Island. And um, yeah, they, eventually ended up in Charleston and they spent a handful of years there. I think probably seven years. Then, uh, they did a year in New Jersey and then they eventually ended up in Jacksonville, Florida. And which is where my mom was born after, uh, her parents, um, moved over after the war, they were in Poland and then, uh, in, um, in Germany at a displacement camp. And so that's my mom's late sister, Eva. She was born in the displacement camp in Germany. And um, yeah, my my dad's parents helped start the Jewish school in Charleston, which at the time was the Charleston Hebrew Institute and is now uh, Adelstone Hebrew Academy. Um, then they went to work at a Jewish school in New Jersey for a year. And then I don't know exactly what brought them to Jacksonville. I think maybe they had some family there or something. Um, moved down to Jacksonville, you know, were deeply involved in Jewish education there. Um, and, you know, including teaching my mom who was handpicked by my Safta, my dad's mom, which is, that's grandmother in Hebrew, um, to, to come over and meet him. And so they met when they started dating when they were 14 and 16. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean that, so that's the early part. Um, I guess, I don't know how deep I was supposed to get on this, but I think that is, that is part of the story. And, um, from there, I mean, they kind of were inseparable, and, um, you know, they went to the University of Florida together, and, you know, my dad was a triple major, I think my mom was a double, you know, he was physics, mathematics, and chemistry, and they also ran a deli, a laundromat, um, and a record store at the wow. same time, so wow. it's it pretty crazy. It sounds so. like you. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, like doing a lot of things at once, and, I mean, they... They came from nothing, you know, when they were got married, they were born, uh, when they got married, they lived in a trailer, and, um, you know, I'm always trying to do justice to my grandparents surviving the Holocaust, and my parents turning nothing into a lot, um, and also helping people along the way, and never letting that side of them go away, and um, so yeah, they were doing, they were running a bunch of businesses while getting multiple degrees, um, so they were very busy and, you know, my dad was an engineer, my mom was a teacher 
And, you know, my dad had a variety of very interesting engineering jobs. And then in 1978, they moved to Charleston. And he had a job at RM Manufacturing. And eventually, um, I'd say probably within the next four or five years, he and a business partner um, bought out that company, started the Intertech Group, which, you know, has grown into a multifaceted organization, you know, originally starting in manufacturing, doing a variety of things in the engineering space, um, and now, you know, doing a lot of things in, in real estate um, and otherwise, you know, part of since my dad has been gone for about 15 years, we've been really having to simplify the organization because he had this very layered mind and complex mind that could see visions around all of these various things in the portfolio and all, he had all sorts of plans for them. So it's been kind of like, all right, how do we simplify this to where our family can manage it? Yeah. Now. Wow. What an incredible story. Big shoes. That's amazing. It's not, not just like a regular story too. It's kind of a love story in there and that's awesome. I love hearing it. Um, so let's talk about your early career and how you got to where you are now. Um, it looks like you were the co-owner and consultant of South Carolina Stingrays starting in 95, so you must have been six years old. Tell us about how your influence at six years old eventually got your family involved with the Stingrays ice hockey team. Yeah, so I'd say it was probably like the Stingrays came to Charleston in 93, the 93-94 season, and then we had an opportunity, my dad had an opportunity in the 94-95 season to become a part owner, and I had been playing uh, NHL 94 on Sega Genesis, so that was like my extent of my hockey fandom, but it was rabid at that moment. And you <laughs> Shout know, out Sega Genesis. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, he had this opportunity to get involved with this, and he, you know, the story goes, again, I don't remember it that well, the story goes he came home and asked me what I thought of it, and I was like, oh, that sounds really cool, and this was, yeah, this was 95, so it would have been like, six ish. Um, and yeah, so that was my, that year was first grade. And then, um, starting in second grade, I went to pretty much all the games. Like I just have a distinct memory of only missing two home games that year. And, uh, you know, it was just a really cool part of my life as a kid was getting to go to the Stingrays games and like having something to look forward to, even if it's just like a Tuesday night and just like the freedom that comes with like yeah, you get to stay up late tonight because we're going to the game. Right. Um, and I was, you know, my mom and I would go an hour and a half early because that's when I wanted to be there. And I'd you know, read through all the stats and everything before the game started. And I'd be the only one sitting in the arena, like pre-warm-ups. And it was just, it was cool. I got to learn everything about hockey, every single thing that can happen to, in a game. And going always to the minors and not going to an NHL game until I was like 12 or 13, I think like helped me appreciate how like the major leagues are special. Um, and yeah, so it's just the, the stingrays have always been a huge part of my life. So yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's like half jokingly on my LinkedIn that I've been a, that I was an owner and advisor from age six or whatever, but um, I was consistently involved in the team. Um, and, you know, as I got into high school, that turned into like more of actually, um, you know, weekly meetings with staff members and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, the Stingrays were a big part of my life and, um, you know, I lost some touch with them when I went to school, but, you know, I've always tried to go to at least a game a year, less so since COVID, but, um, back a couple years ago, we sold 90% of the team to a great guy, Todd Halloran. And, you know, that was really just, we didn't have the, the bandwidth in our family that the team really needed to get to the next level. And, um, you know, minor league sports is a tough business. And Todd was someone that has had a lot of success in business and just wanted to run a hockey team. And 
Um, he has done a really great job. Um, we're glad to still be involved at our 10% level. Todd and I stay in close touch as well. And the current president, Rob Cannon, who's awesome. You know, I watched him play as a kid. So, um, yeah, the Stingrays have just, they taught me a lot. And, you know, originally going into to school, I wanted to be, an, I wanted to work in the NHL in some capacity, whether as, you know, a GM or an agent. Um, and a lot of that was from my experience with the Stingrays. Awesome. Well, glad to hear that they found a good home with Todd, and it also explains your encyclopedic knowledge of the sport. So <laughs> I also wanted to get into your history with Jared Bednar, who is now the current coach or head coach of the Colorado Avalanche. Yeah, I mean, the cool, one of the coolest things about the Stingrays is we've had tremendous success developing people that do go on to, to bigger roles, um, you know, whether that's coaches or equipment managers or otherwise. But, um, you know, Jared Bednar was our, our first head coach in the NHL. The year that I moved to Denver 20, uh, in 2016, he became the coach of the Avalanche the same year, which was really cool. You know, I I had already put before he got hired, I'd put in a deposit on half season tickets, and then he got hired. I was like, oh, I have extra rooting interest. I upped that to full seasons. I've had them since, and um, he was a player, an assistant coach, and a coach for the Stingrays over 15 years, and like. It's, pretty rare to see somebody be with a minor league team that long and then go you know to the nhl like it's not crazy to think there's someone that's a lifer in the minors that's there that long but you know he he really paid his dues and um you know he i just i mean i remembered when my dad told me like he was the choice for the coach when he'd been the assistant and you know, I, I transparently, I just, I didn't know because I'd felt like we hadn't had a lot of success in the playoffs in recent years. I was like, do we need a new voice? You know, my experience in hockey, my dad was like, he's been loyal to us forever. Let's be loyal to him. And I was like, yep, that makes total sense. And, um, you know, he and I were already close and fortunately in Denver, we've been able to stay in touch. And, you know, my, when he first took the job, you know, I remember, you know, both dreaming probably quietly and out loud that he would, bring the cup here and get to raise the cup as the head coach of the avalanche while I was here too. And he did. Wow. Yeah. In 2022, um, it was awesome to see them win the cup. And, um, yeah, I mean, so he's just like this dream story of like, you know, going from a gritty defenseman to an NHL coach and putting in tons and tons of work along the way. And now the stingrays, as of this summer, we have another head coach, Spencer Carberry with, uh, the Washington capitals and Spencer's an amazing human being. His uh, wife was the nanny to my niece and nephew for a while. And, I mean, he's just one of the nicest people in the world and very smart and obviously a great hockey mind. And then we also have an assistant coach, Ryan Morsovsky, um, with the San Jose Sharks. Um, Ryan is probably, the, because we're right around the same age, he kind of, you know, I had a different dynamic with him than I'd had with any of the other coaches. And it was cool. It was kind of like more of a peer whereas like when I'm younger I'm like looking up to these guys and uh and that's something against Ryan it's just he's amazing we were just you know the same age and also he's super driven like I am and um so it's been really cool to see him get to the NHL and then we also have an assistant in Calgary Kale McLean um and the cool thing about Jared Bednar Spencer Carberry and Kale McLean is they all also played for the Stingrays wow um and so yeah just you know having there I don't think there are many minor league hockey teams that can show the success in developing coaches and we've certainly done it with players we've got the equipment manager of the seattle kraken um assistant equipment manager of the uh columbus blue jackets now um among others so yeah i mean just the 
it's interesting, like just having these roots in the Stingrays gives me roots throughout all of hockey because people move around and because the hockey community is small, like, you know, if it's six degrees of separation in the regular world, it's two or three in hockey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so cool. The It's kind of like a full circle moment when he came here and won like right after. That is so wild. It's really cool. Um, so you started as a pro shop employee and a top hockey coach at the Carolina Ice Palace. You yeah. You want to tell us a little bit more about that? <laughs> yeah, and so I know most people don't go as in-depth as I do when, like on a LinkedIn, but for me, as I've shown with this podcast, I really believe that every step along the way makes you who you are. And like, for instance, we'll get to me working in restaurants. Like, it's so crucial to who anyone is as a manager or even just as an employee is like working in businesses where you really have to put in the grit work. Um, and so I include those things because I think it's just important to know, like some people might think, Oh, the, uh, waiting tables job I had in high school doesn't matter. isn't part of the conversation. And like, sure. Don't put that, I guess on your resume for Goldman Sachs, but like it should be part of the story. I agree totally. And I was actually very delighted to see the taught hockey coach. Yeah. So the ice palace, my family opened the Ice Palace in 1997. The Stingrays, um, you know, they when they would practice, if the Coliseum where they played was in use, they would have to drive like three hours to Charlotte. Um, huge pain. Um, oh, that would suck with all their hockey gear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sucked most for the equipment managers for sure. Oh yeah. And um, and I mean, they were used to traveling. They traveled for games, but just to have to travel for a practice was rough. And. So my dad and mom decided, you know, we were going to open a practice facility, but my dad was adamant that it wasn't just going to be a practice facility. It was going to be, quote, a family entertainment destination. So, and, you know, we didn't have much experience with ice rinks at the time. You know, they, they certainly hired people that did and found, uh, found people to help them go around the country and internationally to see other facilities. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I got to be part of the whole development process of the ice palace and, you know, I remember rollerblading in there with my brother before it was anything other than an empty room and old, it used to be like a home headquarters, um, which was some kind of home Depot, I guess. And, um, just seeing that whole project develop. And then eventually, you know, our family got into the rink business in Canada and just like looking back and seeing all the things we didn't know about rinks and about hockey and about like, and seeing how we've had to sort of like fix things, even just like little things that you think of, like the number of concession stands or like the layout of the locker rooms. It's like when you play now, you know, myself having played hockey, you know, at some level since I was six, ice hockey since I was nine, like I now know kind of what works, what doesn't in a rink. And so there were just things we were trying very specifically. My dad was to make this entertainment destination, but it like, Rinks are just rinks are rinks and they can still be a place people come for fun, but like they need to be like the rink first, I guess. That's it's hard to explain. explain. That but, makes sense. Um But yeah, I mean the Ice Palace is where I grew up. Like the Ice Palace and the Stingrays games. Um you know, people like I would get dropped off after school at the Ice Palace once it was open and I, you know, nine years old was working in the in the snack bar and then I don't I don't know if that was all even on there and it's not you got to cut the ribbon and I <laughs> Remember my whole family was holding the big scissors and um, the mayor had the real scissors, but I, I pushed down on the big scissors. That's too. so cool. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we have a funny picture from that. But um, yeah, I mean, God, the Ice Palace was awesome. And um, I learned a lot about business there. I learned about, about hockey. I learned just like, I just was really soaking up so much um, looking back. And um, yeah, I spent tons of time in the pro shop. So that's where I would hang out after school and um 
working there, working there um, for at least, I worked in there a couple summers, but you know, once I got into high school, I wanted to work away from family business, but um, it was a very special place, continues to be, and you know, kind of came full circle about a year ago shooting my first kind of from scratch feature film there. Um, so next up is the ice cream and cake person at Carville Ice Cream, and no job is too small. Um, and then you also worked at Moe's Southwest Grill. He's just like us, ladies and gentlemen. How, what were those experiences like? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've always always been a big food eater, and I've always, you know, I've always been interested in the restaurant business. You know, my family had some involvement in the restaurant business uh, growing up. Um, you know, we had my favorite restaurant growing up, Cisco's, um, a Mexican restaurant near our house that no longer exists. Um, we had Sunfire Grill and Bistro, which is now where our only restaurant we currently own in Charleston sits, Miss Rose's, which is named after my grandma. And, um, yeah, so I, I wanted to work away from a family business. Like I wanted to go do my own thing a little bit just to not be the owner's kid, honestly. And like, um, yeah, I got, I got a job at an ice cream place in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina near where my uh, teenage girlfriend and I, you know, my, I was 15. I had a girlfriend that lived near there at the time. So it was very convenient. We actually Priorities. Both got jobs there. <laughs> um, yes. And yeah, I mean, I spent a summer slinging ice cream and like getting to the point where the owner would trust me to lock up at night as a 15 year old. Wow. And, um, maybe, I th yeah, 15. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I learned a ton there. Just the responsibility that came with like handling the drawer and like, cleaning all the machines and I would literally go home and like smell like the sanitizer from the three compartment sink. And I would like have dreams about, about the sink. Wow. <laughs> so, Yikes. Um, but it was, it was fun. I learned a lot. And I just think like customer service, especially in the hospitality space is like the place to cut your teeth just in like appreciating life, I guess, and appreciating people. And, um, you know, f nothing against people that haven't, but you, there's plenty of people that treat service people well that haven't worked in restaurants, but the people that don't, you know, haven't. Yep, exactly. And there is something to be said for anybody who works in the service industry. It's just such a thankless position most of the time. And f for somebody to hand a 15 year old keys to their shop, that says a lot about you. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, I took it seriously always. And um, and yeah, and then the next summer I worked at Moe's, which was, you know, one of my favorite places to eat. And that was a lot of fun. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, and I also, I worked at a burger place in college, U Burger, and, um, I've just, I enjoy customer service and enjoyed that process of the restaurant. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get into, I opened a restaurant at one point, so. So let's get into your education a bit. Um, you went to the Questrom School of Business at BU, Boston University. What was that experience like? I know you spent some time in Boston after you graduated as well. So yeah, I mean, I, let's see. I mean, I love BU. Um, it was called the school, the school that I was in was called the School of Management at the time, thanks to a very generous gift from Alan Questrom. It's now the Questrom School of Business. And um, it was a fun place to go to school. You know, I, I'm the type that like, once I decide something, I generally stick to it. And I, I visited there once with my parents and I one of the assistant coaches of the hockey team at the time used to play for the Stingrays and he gave us like a tour of the new rink and got to meet the legendary coach and stuff and so you know I wanted one of the reasons I wanted to go there is because they had a good hockey team I had absolutely no aim at playing on it had no chance but I wanted 
to be a fan of it and I got to and um so that was a big part of it and I just I realized when I got there that I just really like sort of that city environment so yeah I went you know I went to a summer program there between my junior and senior year of high school um and yeah I was just sure I wanted to go there and got did apply to early decision got in thankfully and um just loved being in Boston I loved uh, the school that I was in and the friends that I made there. I mean, it was a really tough time in my life. My, my dad got sick the summer I graduated high school. And for various business reasons, you know, it wasn't something we were really public about um, until he passed away, which was like the middle of my sophomore year. And so, yeah, it was a tough time. Um, but, you know, I was, I'm glad that I was at BU and with those people for it. And... Um, yeah, I mean, I met some of my best friends in the world there, and, you know, I'm the type of entrepreneur that likes to think I know which friends I can work with and which friends I can't, or I, I figure it out, at least. In yeah, practice. that's a fine line. And, yeah, I mean, I have four of my close business partners are friends from BU, and, uh, you know, we generally work really well together, and so super impactful place to be, and also being in the city provided that level of independence that I always craved. Um, you could get anywhere on the trains, and... Um, just kind of do your own thing for whatever reason. I always wanted to do my own thing. And, um, so yeah, Boston was an awesome place to go to school. And I mentioned working at U-Burger while I was there, which, um, U-Burger's in my opinion, the best burger in the world. Um, Ooh, shots fired. unfortunately, so their first location opened my freshman year. Unfortunately, it recently post COVID closed. Um, they, they still have one location left in a suburb, but, um, it was an awesome place to work. Great owners, Nick and Spiro, and learned a lot from them. And um, yeah, I mean that—that's kind of the the brief. For, oh, and the other big part of the Boston experience is obviously the hockey team, which I got on, uh, which I got into previously. Um, you know, kind of similar to my Avalanche dream here. Like I, the one thing I really wanted to happen in college was for us to win a national championship, yeah. and. The BU hadn't won a national championship since 95. They'd lost to the finals a couple times. Um, and so I was just, like, so deeply engaged with being a fan of this team. Like, you know, again, just like the Stingrays game, I'd get there an hour and a half early. I would – the minute they would let us in, I'd be running to my spot in the student section because it was general admission in the student section and save the front row for my friends and for me. And um, Very on par. Yeah, yeah. Who I mean, you are. <laughs> it was anxiety-ridden. Yeah, Those sure. nights of saving seats. and But someone told me recently, like, yeah, whenever I talk about BU hockey, I tell my friends about how you used to save a seats. And I'm like, all right, it's worth it. It's worth it. it. <laughs> <laughs> totally worth um, it. So, I mean, I, it was literally like being on the ice with the team. Like, we're standing behind the net where BU shoots twice. So, wow. like, it was just, you know, it's when you're celebrating a goal, it's like you're celebrating with the team. It was yeah. just, it was awesome. And, you know, people would ask, like, oh, do you want to work for the team? And it was, and stuff like that. And there were th things I thought about at some point, but, like, I'm really glad I just decided to be a fan. Um, and college hockey fandom, like, college hockey isn't huge outside of the college hockey community, but within it, it's rabid. And, I'm sure. Um, so, yeah, my best times in college were definitely those times. And, yeah, in 2009, um, we were fortunate to be the best team in the country pretty much the whole season and win the national championship after being down three to one wow. with less than a minute left. Oh my God. In the third and is, you know, I think probably one of, the, if not the most exciting hockey game ever. I can't imagine um, that probably was insane to be there. And I'm sorry for the detail, but you know, we, we scored, Zach Cohen scored with 59 seconds left uh, to make it three to two. And like my friends and I, as me and Alex Odera and Chris Phillips and Nick Gottak were sitting watching and, um, 
we're like, uh, I guess, you know, 3-2 doesn't look as bad of a loss. Like, going into that period down 3-1, we were like, man, after this full year of being the best team in the world or in the in the country for college, like, we're, this is how it's going to end. And then, but then, you know, I, we never fully let down hope. You know, our legendary coach, Jack Parker, co- pulled the goalie with over three minutes left, and there were some really scary moments where they almost got an empty netter. But um, with 17 seconds left, uh a guy still playing in the NHL, Nick Bonino, scored the goal wow. um, to tie it up. It was one of the best feelings I've ever had was that tying goal, despite the winner coming up after that. And, um, yeah, it was it was incredible. And it was in Washington, D.C. Um, and then, yeah, 11 minutes into the first overtime, we, uh, we scored to win. Wow. And uh, that whole season was kind of like that. We hadn't lost since uh, – we lost two games to Vermont in November, and those were our last losses of the season – and anyone that has been in the school management or Questrom School of Business at BU, I assume they still do it, is familiar with the core program. And basically it's a, it's a semester-long program where you're with one team the whole semester in every class working on a business. And so it's very intense. Yeah. And like we were this – so like I think our business plan was due like before – right before we left for Thanksgiving. And I was like, you know – I'll work up until the game starts. I won't go early and save my seats, but like I'm going to these two games yeah. and those are the two losses. Wow. Um, but uh, so some of my teammates might not have been too happy, but um, you know, I was otherwise a very good teammate. And um, yeah, so BU hockey, I can't talk about my experience at BU without talking about BU hockey, without mentioning that, you know, 10 guys from that team skating in the NH- skated in the NHL. It's pretty unprecedented. Um, and then, you know, we still have Nick Benino and Kevin Shattenkirk continuing to play in the NHL. So um, just cool feeling connected to those guys and people we saw them beat and stuff along the way. Yeah, that sounds awesome. What a cool, like, formative period of your life. It sounds like it was really exciting and also some hardships, but I'm glad you had the support you did. Yeah, I feel like I'm going to talk for hours, so apologies. (laughs) I mean, this is your podcast, (laughs) so it's okay. Um, Let's get into your internships that you did over the summers. Sports marketing at Passport International, Bank of America, and Newport Sports Management. Yeah, I mean, honestly, they were, I think people generally often think of internships as sort of throwaway, but all three of those were actually pretty formative for me. Um, You know, really, I wanted, so Passport, I did the summer after senior year. And, you know, I'd been working at Moe's before that, but like I wanted something more businessy. Um, for learning purposes. Well, you got it. I, yeah, I mean, I went back to being the owner's kid. My family owned Passport International. It was an apparel company. Um, amazing. They had an amazing staff. Um, we sold it, you know, a while back. Um, but Mike Fuel, who ran it, is still w- with our, our company. Um, but, I mean, I learned a lot that summer. It was, you know, it was the summer I found out my dad was sick. So, honestly, it was very, like, trying for me. It was, you know, there was, there were days that I just, like, couldn't do things like I just couldn't get much done and I felt horrible but like in the moments that I could work I worked really hard um so I mean it's, it's kind of eaten at me since and I actually talked to Mike about it within the last couple of years um but nothing I mean it sounds like it was nothing he noticed I certainly always did as much as I possibly could but I learned a lot there I learned a lot about um creating apparel for sports teams and about inventory management and warehouse management I spent a lot of that summer in the hot warehouse and like the handful of songs that kept playing on the radio, the same way when I worked at restaurants, like they would just stick in my head so deeply. And so whenever they come on, I go back to the warehouse. But yeah, so spent a lot of time in the warehouse there at Passport. Uh, 
worked with great people. And that was, I think that was a good summer thing to do before going to college. And then, um, the next one, yeah, the next summer I did Bank of America. Um, again, you know, the impetus for me was really just like, I want to find something that will be good on my resume that like shows that I'm doing something in the summers, but like, that'll be interesting. And so I, they kind of, you know, I'm, I'm privileged. Like we know a lot of people, thankfully. And like, you know, I knew people at Bank of America through my family and, um, you know, they kind of built an internship for me, which was really cool of them. And, uh, I got to spend like, I forget the exact amount of time, but I got to go through six different lines of business over the summer. So I'd spend maybe like a couple weeks in each one from, um, like commercial mortgages to private wealth. Actually, I don't even know if they allowed me in that one, but, um, to like, uh, banking to like uh, service center. So like I did uh, mystery shopping at banks oh, for cool. part of my project. And then the deliverable at the end was kind of presenting to their executive team, the local Charleston team, um, an overview of how I saw the services of the bank and like kind of ideas that I had. And, you know, I, I'm never going to forget the, uh, the tagline that I came up with based on my experience. It was community comfort world resources because you know, I don't know, this obviously could have been a Charleston thing, but everyone was super nice um, and just thoughtful, I felt like. And I felt like at least, you know, I don't think it's probably the case anymore for Bank of America, maybe. But at the time, just like the the service and the banking centers was very um, just, just really good and nice and all of that. So I kind of felt like they were trying to provide like they're a community bank in terms of how they treat you. But they obviously had world resources. Um that supposedly got sent up the chain as a potential tagline for something. Never turned into anything, but I felt cool about that. That is cool. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I just sort of, it was cool just to like, as a kid and you like Bank of America, you don't even think about the different lines of business that they're right. doing somewhere. Right. So it's, it was just cool to see. And just like the thing, these days people so often complain about the big corporations. And I get that in terms of like where the dollars are ending up and things like that. But the people implementing that work or, you know, they're just people like a lot of them are good people. And so, you know, I certainly hope people don't hold it against someone if they work for a big corporation. And like, you know, I met some really, really awesome people there, like people that I think back to their advice today. Some of them I haven't talked to since, um, you know, in case they listen, like Chris Abbott and Dan Vroon. Like I remember stuff that they told me at that internship that like, you know, they wouldn't remember telling me probably. It's like, that's happened to me before too, where someone's come up to me and they're like, this thing that you said to me, like I've kept thinking about and I have don't remember saying it. And it's it's really nice. So, you know, uh, I hope that, that those people, um, Wendy Cop as well, I hope that those people, you know, and Kara Fox, sorry, I'm stopped. But I just, I remember these people, you know, this was my freshman year of high school and that's how welcoming and stuff they were. So, um, And that's the impact they had on you. Yeah. And I just think that's important, you know. Um, and I think it, those people lend a hand in all the impact that I'm able to have. So, um, Bank of America was, it was really cool. And, um, the next one though is the, you know, probably the coolest job I've ever done. No offense to like my own businesses, but, um, excuse me, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So Newport sports management, that was summer of 2008, the summer after my dad passed away in, in April. But like, you know, he and I had been talking about this internship, like, you know, I wanted to work in the NHL, and this was maybe my first NHL job. Um, and Newport Sports is like the biggest hockey agency. And um, 
yeah, so I mean, I, I was in a weird place mentally, but I went there and I just, you know, it was really, I think like the actual time on the calendar was only a little over a month there, but it was like 24 seven work. Cause it was, the, um, when I got there was like kind of that later in the resigning period. So it was probably like late June. Um, oh, and then we, I went to the draft with them. So I got there like, you know, mid to late June, um, worked all on the draft and then prepped for free agency. Free agency was and continues to be July one. And then, uh, yeah, and then I think we, we worked like 24-7 basically through up until July 4th holiday. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I, I say it was a summer because, you know, it doesn't sound like much in a month, but, God, you packed a lot into that month. Yeah. And so it was the coolest thing ever. I mean, Donnie Meehan was great to me, the, the founder of the, the company, and I really, um, you know, Pat Morris took me under his wing, you know, still one of the power agents in the NHL and – um, he also like, he knew where I was mentally at the time. And he really like kind of took me into his family in a lot of ways for the summer. I, I lived at Donnie's, but you know, he was traveling a lot and I would go, um, to dinner with Pat and his family and like, you know, still talk to his kids. And, um, yeah, I mean, so it, it was, that was just an important time in my life. I needed that. And, um, I mean, it, don't get me wrong. It was like a lonely time too, because I was like by myself a lot during that one, but in, that was tough in that time. But yeah, I mean, I got to do all the things I dreamed of doing. Like, I would sit at home, you know, I would get caught in class in high school trying to, to like, read stuff that I'd printed out from TSN, the Canadian, like, sports site uh, in class. And so, like, you know, on the trade deadline day. And so, like, being to literally be in the middle of the draft in a free agency was, like, an absolute dream come true for me. And we had such an incredible roster of clients. And, um, you know, for hockey fans listening, like, this was the 2008 draft, which was an amazing draft. Um, you know, our clients included, and I'm sure they wouldn't want me to give you a full list, but they include Steven Stamkos, Drew Doughty, Alex Petriangelo, Eric Carlson, um, among others. And, you know, I'm, there's a video on YouTube where Steven Stamkos gets drafted first overall. And in this particular video, you can see me like in the same row. So it was a big deal for 20 year old me, you know, I'm wearing a suit at the draft. So like, you know, a couple little kids are like, are you a player? I'm like, if you knew anything about physique, then you would know, but I'm glad you don't. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was just like the coolest thing ever for a kid that was obsessed with the NHL. If you're enjoying this episode, I would greatly appreciate if you could review, like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platforms. Your engaged support goes a long way in helping the show grow and getting our impactful guests heard. Now back to the show. Um, that sounds amazing. What a intense time it sounds like it, it could have been really hard but having mentors that took you under their wing during a time that was so important to you is yeah. is incredible and i'm really glad to hear that yeah and i mean same thing as at bank of america in terms of the people like i mentioned donnie and pat but um like mark guy and Rand simon um and craig oster and wade arnott like just incredible human beings that i again still lean on things they said to me Amazing. That's so cool. The last story I do want to throw in from that one is uh, just for any hockey fans out there, this will be a good good clip for you guys. Um, so this was the summer that Sean Avery became a free agent uh, after playing with the Rangers, really establishing himself. And, you know, my kind of one of my biggest jobs of the summer was to create 
basically like a sales deck for Sean Avery, the hockey player. And so like, if you're not familiar with Sean Avery, he is like a larger than life character who was very controversial, said whatever was on his mind and like, is very different from the average hockey player. He was really into fashion and like would work at like Vanity Fair in the summer. And, um, you know, now it's continues to work in fashion and, um, continues to, to in, been acting and doing podcasts and all that. So big, like cool, interesting character, fascinating guy. And I built this sales deck about him and I'd be like digging into these ridiculous stats, like his points per like points relative to hits or points relative to time on ice and like categorizing him with comparables in the, in the space. And I got to, uh, I remember, I think it was Ken Holland who was the GM of the wings at the time. He's the GM of the Oilers now. Um, Pat had him on speaker and he's like, yeah, my intern Jeffrey's here. And he was like, oh, is that the one that made that Sean Avery book? <laughs> <laughs> so he saw it. Yeah. So that is like, at least my work's getting noticed. Um, you know, Sean Avery went on to sign a big deal with the Dallas stars that summer. I got to listen into some of those calls. Um, you know, it, for any hockey fans out there, you know, the rest of the story and the mess that became, but he ended up back where he belonged in New York. That's awesome. So from there, you went into, you became an intramural referee for ice hockey and ice broom ball at BU. What's broom ball? Yeah. So, so yeah, I did that, um, I think at least for three years of college. Um, so, you know, I got to ref a little bit like growing up. And so, yeah, I just, it was a fun way to make some side money. And uh, broom ball is, I don't know if it's still the case, but at the, at the time was the most popular intramural sport at BU. And um, it's basically it's kind of like a version of hockey that anyone can play because you play it with shoes and you play it with, they call it a broom, but it's got more of a rigid end on it than that. Um, but uh, yeah, you just, you know, it's you and a bunch of your friends on the ice hitting the ball around trying to win. Um, and yeah, I think senior year, maybe we didn't get to play because one of the years of school, we didn't get to play because of some maintenance to the rink and they only had a lottery, but um, it was one of the most fun games to play ever. And like, I had briefly tried it in Charleston with some people, but like it had a more of a culture around it in Boston. And so, yeah, I like to think that's still going on. It makes me want to see if there's broomball leagues in Denver. Um, Cause it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun, but I mean, getting to ref hockey was fun too. I played intramural hockey also. So I played, played all of those and ref those. And um, yeah, it was a fun way to be involved in the school community. For sure. I think I know what our next uh, company outing is going to be. Trying to find some broom ball. That would be awesome. <laughs> uh, would you ever ref again? It's crossed my mind, but mostly I lean no just because of the time commitment. And like, I have to be careful about the time that I, you know, how I use my time these days. I'll ask you again in a few years when Keelan or Rowan are into hockey. Uh, well, hope maybe I'll be coaching at that okay. time. So. Oh, yeah. Okay, there you go. So from there, you went to play-by-play uh, -play -play broadcasting at fasthockey.com, which seems like a super high-stress position. How'd you get through that? Yeah, so I'll... I'll go into this might be like next in the list or something, but you know, we had the a junior team based out of the ice palace and like for those listening junior hockey is generally like fifth ages 15 to like 21 best kids, you know, this was like a lower tier. So we had at the time we started with the junior C team eventually had a junior B team, but I was basically helping to run this team out of our Charleston rink while I was at school. So like remote job before people were doing it as often, I suppose. <laughs> you pioneered um, it. Yeah. And it was kind of like almost an extra full-time job in college. Um, just like, I mean, me and, and Matt Mons, who was the GM of the Ice Palace at the time and is like a brother to me, um, we were running that team. And uh, part of that, for that, you know, 
for the games that I went to, I wanted to broadcast them. Like streaming wasn't like a big thing at the time. Um, you know, I could, we couldn't, I couldn't get the video done on my own, but I could get the audio done on my own. And I'd always loved hockey radio because it's so much more descriptive generally. Cause like, you know, you know that your listener can't see. And to, as a brief aside, it pains me when, Teams now sometimes just use their TV audio on the radio. It's just like, why would anyone listen? Anyway. Um, but yeah, so I, so I did the broadcasting for that. Um, I, only, I did you know, a handful of games for the Wolverines that I was able to go to. And then they, they made it to the national championship our first year. Junior C, it was in Massachusetts, so I was able to get there relatively easily from Boston. And uh, you know, I was calling their games. And the first day, somebody like from Fast Hockey who was – streaming the national championships like heard me calling the game and they're like do you want to call some other games and so i i did um i did our next games video audio and then i did like a handful of other teams and like some of them like at least one of them they had me join mid-game so i'm like learning the roster as i go and i'm like all right number 15 uh whatever like so it was, it was tough but it was like you know it was friends and family watching at home like they were just happy to have somebody on it um but yeah, there was certainly a time in my childhood where I wanted to be uh, do play by play for hockey. Um, so yeah, I mean, I loved I loved doing that. I'm so glad I at least got a few moments of that in my life. And then fast hockey, they did like some other junior games and stuff. So I think I worked like a couple other games for them after that. Um, but it was mostly over the national championship. That's awesome. I feel like it would be a high stress position for me, but for somebody like you, you're probably the perfect person to call hockey games. I definitely, like, I was way better back then. Just my, my hockey, like, general knowledge and everything, like, college was my peak. You know, I would use all my free time to, like, know everything that was going on in hockey. So I think, like, that version of me was was really, yeah, was certainly a great person to have broadcasting. Um, That's probably, like, a long-term, like, core memory at this point, though. For sure. And, like, if I'm not coaching my kids one day, assuming they want to play, I'm not going to force them. Uh, I would love to do play-by-play for their game. Awesome. That'd be so cool. Let me know. Yeah. So from there, you became the vice president director of media and public relations for the Charleston Wolverines, which is the junior B hockey league, or sorry, team that you were just talking about. How was that? Yeah, I mean, I, I got into it a bit a minute ago, but like it was it was like having a full time job at school and I loved it. And, you know, the team was successful and it was a way to stay connected to the Charleston hockey community from afar. So you became co-founder and chief advisor for Hodera Property Management, and I will say Alex Hodera was our very first podcast guest ever and remains one of your best friends. Yeah. How did this experience set you up for future success? Um, let's see. So, you know, I start basically after I had that internship at Newport, you know, my dad, like I said, my dad had just passed away, and I just, for whatever reason, I had kind of decided, like, man, I love this hockey stuff, but like, I want to, I think I want to have more impact. I think that's where my head was at. At least that's how I see it now. Um, and Alex, he got his, you can listen to his episode, episode one, if you want, uh, you <laughs> know, to learn one, more, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, he, he got his real estate, um, renter rental agents license our freshman year to impress his now wife. At least that was part of it. Uh, <laughs> Megan and Megan, um, I hope you're listening. And yeah, so he, he and I had kind of talked about real estate um, our first couple years. And then, yeah, junior year, we just like really started to dig in on investment ideas and he would would pitch me stuff. He and our, our friend Vin that we started the property management company with and did our first investment with Vin Vomero, um, certainly a future guest. And um, 
we we decided to you know we put together a pitch basically to buy this property and we were able to talk you know friends and family to helping us put the money down for it and we bought what ended up being a frat house well we knew it was a frat house it was it was two seven bed units so it was like a huge frat house and you know my thinking as like a naive 21 year old is like if we take really good care of this house they're gonna be like so happy and they'll take care of it back yeah as frat frat members do yeah so yeah they didn't but um you know we so in conjunction with buying that property we started a property management company hodera property management to go along with alex's existing hodera real estate group which was at least called at the time the only fully student owned and operated real estate brokerage and um yeah i mean it, alex i mean he had a whole fun setup going in an office full of great people you know friends that were rental agents and stuff but um we bought so we bought the property we started a property management company along it and then we also you know got some other clients for the property management company in terms of the frat house they did not take great care of it um i mean they certainly were like glad or surprised to have college kids as the owners now but uh you know we, we immediately did a bunch of work on the houses like made on the house made it nice yeah. at least nicer did they appreciate it yeah i don't know it's hard to say if they appreciate they didn't they didn't show their appreciation so it was you know we spent our entire senior year you know in a, it was an amazing year we had so much fun but we were property managers the whole time so like you know it could be the middle of the night and there's like a fire alarm going off or like the cops got called or like they got a bunch of tickets for the trash and they didn't pay them and just like little things like that or like you know the toilets overflowing and like so we, we learned a lot that like we didn't love the property management side. We stayed involved in that business for at least a few more years, but um, we ended up kind of making a trade with an awesome property manager, Keith Harrington, eventually to run our properties. And um, yeah, so we ended up owning that property, 3840 Gardner Street. Um, I don't really know what its current status is, but we, we owned and operated it for six profitable years. So we were happy with it. Um, and you know, from there, um, we ended up buying another property our senior year. And, um, you know, we were able to really, because of the, the markets at the time and the rates, we were able to really, uh, fix up a property, um, put a lot of elbow grease into it, save a lot of money on that part, and then refinance them with higher quality, better rents, and, and actually have some money to then put into the next project with the way all of that worked out. Um, so, you know, fortunately Alex and Vin kept running the day to day to that as I decided to move to Chicago. That's awesome. What a cool way to get your foot in the door yeah. with the, your two best friends. That's couldn't imagine a better start. So like you just said, you, from there you went to Chicago and uh, you opened up Pizza Persona. You're a co-founder for that. Um, you brought this business up a few times uh, before in relation to early career lessons. So what lessons have stuck with you after starting this first venture? Yeah, I mean, probably learned the most from Pizza Persona. I mean, I guess it depends how you define that, but... Um, yeah, so we kind of kept the real estate business going um, from afar, and I was would fly in when I needed to. And um, but my friend James Canard and I, we were, were roommates for a couple years, and we um, we worked at U Burger together. You know, we were close friends, and you know, we wanted to open a restaurant, and you know, we we wanted really to open a burger place, but we knew that like there were a lot of those, and like Five Guys was blowing up at the time, and like. So we're like, yeah, we could do a cool burger place, but like, you know, we had very high aspirations and ambitions for the growth of this. 
we weren't like the type that wanted to create a mom and pop <laughs> single store. There's nothing wrong with those. They actually mm-hmm. tend to be often more enjoyable, but you know, this is as kids at the time, basically. And yeah, we uh, moved to Chicago. James was from there. Um, you know, I was for various reasons decided I didn't want to be in Boston anymore. And, um, you know, we wanted to go somewhere that we knew. So we went to Chicago where James was and, um, or his family was, and, we spent a long time looking for the right location. We really wanted to be in Evanston near Northwestern. Um, we kept losing out on spots to like, you know, corporations that, that weren't, you know, college kids with, that had saved up some money and, you know, and I saved, and I say saved up, you know, some of that is um, something that my dad left me honestly. And like that, you know, I decided to, to risk a bunch of it and um, for better or worse. But uh, yeah, so we, we opened pizza persona in January of, uh, maybe November of 2011, I'd say. And, um, I mean, James and I learned a ton figuring that out. You know, we ended up right on the border of Lincoln Park and Lakeview in Chicago. Um, and I mean, the number one, I'll get more into it, but like the number one thing that I learned just looking at where I've gone in the story so far is just like how to be more thoughtful with our decision-making in, the early stage and like making sure to pinch pennies early so you can save them for later instead of like making the the nicer decision in terms of like an aesthetic or something like that. Um, like the, one of the examples I like to use is that, you know, we fe- we envisioned pizza persona as eventually being like this big chain. And so one of the biggest mistakes I think we made is kind of like, starting it out to be that which then kept it from sort of building its own character on its own and letting whatever that became expand it's like we kind of like put the stamp on this is what it's going to be too early and so an example is that we, we we had to have custom cups you know we had to have cups with our logo on them and like you know, maybe we didn't do our due diligence enough. Like maybe we did, but you know, whatever, wh- whoever we were ordering with, like we had to order an absurd amount. I think it was a hundred thousand. <laughs> and James and I were just like, well, this is a non-negotiable for both of us. Yeah. So we're going to do it and we're going to, we're going to make, spend this money and we're going to get it back. And, um, you know, I'll say when we, when we unfortunately had to close the business in 2013, uh, we, unfor- I'm sorry to the storage unit owner, um, that we left those there, but it just would have been really expensive to move them. Um, he, he'd gotten a lot of our money at that point, so it was fine, yeah. but, um, but he was not happy, but, uh, <laughs> we had a lot of cups left. Probably ended up in a storage wars episode or something. I mean, that would be hilarious. I'd love to know if they did end up somewhere. Maybe we should do a deep dive on storage yeah. wars. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've, I've watched a few seasons of that. But <laughs> yeah, it's good. Uh, but yeah, you know, James definitely used, used a bunch for, for beer pong and the like afterwards. But um, yeah, so, you know, we, we had an amazing staff. We had great food. So, like, I think we really were successful in a lot of ways. You know, we had four and a half stars on Yelp. And, uh, you know, just we learned the horrible nature of the restaurant industry and just like you know you have to manage like hundreds of things and it's just like unless you have a really something really great work down to a science that has built up this long-term you know sort of space for it for itself it's really hard to make money in that industry and just like the ratio of work to profit is just like so rough. I mean, we would spend 90 hours a week in there usually at least. And, um, I mean, we, we ate, slept, you know, this restaurant, yeah. um, it was your baby. 
yeah, I mean, like James and I lived in there and it, it like was, you know, it was like less than two years. I mean, I think we in total probably worked on the project for like three plus years, but, um, it was a grind. You know, there were moments that I was like, man, this is a lot, but, uh, it was also really fun. Like I love serving customers. I love making food. Like I love, you know, just giving people, making them happy, giving them a good day. Like, um, you know, I still remember our busiest day ever and it was, um, St. Patrick's day, at least the celebration day in Chicago. So it was a Saturday and it was, this was 2012. And, um, for some reason, James and I just like, didn't think about the fact that we'd be busy on St. Patrick's day. It's just like, we, you know, we, we planned it to be a normal day, but yeah. So we, for whatever reason, we just like, didn't think, think about it. Cause like, it is the busiest drinking holiday in Chicago probably. And, um, so I just like, we were normally staffed, which was understaffed for this day. And like, I was working that day and like, usually, you know, on the weekends, we'd try to do just one of us in there. So the other one could have a day or two. Um, so I was working and James wasn't. And by the time we realized like how crowded it was going to be, you know, James had been enjoying his day and like partying and stuff. So like there wasn't a ton he could help with, you know, that he was comfortable helping with in that environment, which I agree, you know, and we, but we had an amazing staff and I like emergency called a handful of people and like, you know, one in particular, Maria Caracciolo, who I remember very well, like she was, um, just so helpful that day amongst other employees in terms of like just making it through. We did, we made green dough for St. Patrick's Day. So we, we had that thought, but for some reason we didn't think we were going to be busy. And, um, yeah, we had just, we had to lock the door at night, but we had a line of people out of it. Um, you know, we closed, I think like 10 or 11 and yeah, it was just really hectic and crazy. And you just learn a lot on those days and where you like just feel like so spent at the end, but it's also like kind of cool. And I mean, we, our business was growing over our time in it slowly, but surely, but this was by far our biggest day. So it was just like really cool to see. And you know, there's a million things that I, we would have changed to, to do differently and sell better. But I mean, the biggest, you know, we don't, we try not to make this an excuse. Like we could have done things a million times better, but the biggest sort of impact on our business was the Panera bread company next door became Panera cares, which was this experimental pay what you can, eatery they have at one point they had four or five in the country they're all gone now um but it was basically like you know we're in downtown chicago and it's a pay what you can so people would really camp out there and like i get it like i don't blame the people that needed the food um but like there'd be a line with like grocery carts and stuff of like people in front of our door um so that was july and we just precipitously saw the numbers declining and we were getting to a point where it's like, we've already spent a lot of money. Do we want to just keep this breathing in this spot that clearly doesn't work as much as we've put into it? Like in business, that's a thing you have to, you know, I probably should, maybe should have learned it a little, little bit earlier in that process, but um, sometimes you just have to cut the cord yeah. and that's a really hard decision. I, I, it's something I've had to do with multiple businesses. Unfortunately, I mean, I think most entrepreneurs, at least myself, fail a lot more than we succeed. And so you have to decide when is the time to re-engage or when is the time to cut the cord. Um, and yeah, so unfortunately we closed on James's birthday, uh, January 11th of 2013. Um, sorry, James. And yeah, but you know, we, we learned an incredible amount. And like the main reason we decided to close that day was because we were like obsessed with making sure we didn't leave our employees out in the lurch. So we made sure, I think we gave them at least two weeks of wages, um, maybe three. And 
that was the end of the money basically for this project. And, um, yeah, you know, we just, it was sad. It was a sad time. Learned a lot. You know, I was down for a while, but, um, you know, fortunately the real estate business was doing well and could soften some of the blow. And, um, that led me to start digging into angel investing and just like seeing what was going on in the startup world. And, um, I did a couple of my own development projects in Chicago and, um, just minor ones. And, uh, yeah, just really that, that process sort of got my entrepreneurial engine going again. Yeah. Well, the way that ended with the last few ducats that you have going to the employees is a very Jeffrey Zucker thing to do. I mean, I, you know, I broke down in tears to my mom over this, like, just, I hate the idea of people counting on us and not, you know, not being there for them. So well, you're like the most altruistic person I know. So that super tracks. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> I, I'm not all good. <laughs> uh, real quick. I, I want to know where the name pizza persona come from. Man, naming in business is a really hard thing. Like yes. I've dealt with it many times. And I've dealt with it with you yeah. many times. Yeah, it's it's a real, real tough thing. And so, you know, pizza persona I didn't explain yet was it's basically like build your own pizza, Chipotle style line for pizza. You know, some of those like Blaze Pizza exist now, but um, you know, we had three doughs, seven sauces, six cheeses, twenty some toppings, cooked in five minutes in our brick oven, and. Uh, the name was really like we wanted people to be able to like the concept was discover your pizzanality was our tagline. So it's like you're showing your your pizza persona when you choose what's on your pizza. And we just thought it sounded good and decent, you know, relative to all the other garbage we could come up with. And um, unfortunately, we, we sold that trademark very cheaply to Persona Pizza, which is a chain now. Um, looking back, I. Yeah. You know, I wish I put up a little more of a fight, but, um, <laughs> damn you Panera bread. Yeah. Yeah. I blame Panera, but I, I did actually meet the founder of Panera once told him that we were the first of seven businesses to close on that block actually. And, um, he didn't know, I mean, he didn't really care, but like, he was like, Oh, that's like too bad to hear type of thing. Like, Oh, that was a bad experiment. Like clearly, especially if they stopped doing that. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that Panera cares, but I think like in the grand scheme of life, it was probably for the best. Like, I, I don't love that I it's scary to think of like what life would have been like if I'd been like chained to the restaurant forever. Yeah. Um, so we did lose a fair amount of money and it was painful in that regard. And, you know, uh, we had an amazing staff, like I said. Um, Shout out Maria. Yeah. Yeah. Maria and Xavier, you know, and, and Morgan, those are those are our three superstars. Um, and. Yeah, uh, it was. Learned such an insane amount from that restaurant, and uh, yeah, it really, it was a very expensive education experience. My, my uncle Charles, um, who I know sometimes listens to the podcast, maybe he'll listen to this one. He came in one time um, when he was visiting Chicago, and he explained to me that like whatever happened, like it's an education you can't get anywhere else. Um, and I, I took that to heart, and like even if it's just like sort of a pacifier for for the the issue like um i think it's true yeah hey a valuable lesson is a valuable lesson <laughs> so i want to get in a bit to intertech group which is uh the company that your family started um what is intertech and how is how has your involvement evolved over the years yeah i mean when we when we talked about my dad i briefly went into it it's like you know it's it's a 
vibrant holdings company of, with in a lot of different areas, but right now, you know, focused more on real estate and finance. Um, we have a variety of like sort of sub companies. We have an ice rink business, uh, fishing lure business, Z-Man Fishing, um, which, you know, my brother has been a big part of growing tremendously. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, it's really developed from sort of an engineering company to more of like a family office for our family. And, um, it, you know, I, we got to have a front row seat as kids to my parents doing business. And so I just felt like I always learned a lot. We were always sort of part of the intertech family, knew all the staff, you know, our, our headquarters would probably, you know, I'm sorry that I don't know better, Jonathan, but you know, we have probably have like 20 to 30 people, <laughs> um, in our office right now. And, uh, so point being like my brother and my mom, you know, are the ones that have been running it since my dad passed away. My sister and I stay deeply engaged in terms of being up, trying to be up to date on what work is going on, uh, helping consult on a variety of projects. Um, and also just like keeping our eye out for opportunities that might make sense for the business, you know, so that's part of keeping up to date in terms of like where they're going, what they're looking for, um, you know, whether it's opportunities in real estate, uh, whether it's opportunities in the ice rink business, you know, among many other things, um, that's part of what we do. And, um, really just, we work with my mom and my brother in terms of how to best create impact. My siblings and I are, uh, we invest in, uh, impact businesses through a joint venture together called anti-gravity ventures. And, um, it's been, uh, it's been cool. I mean, yeah. So in terms of intertech, I mean, I've been deeply engaged in various capacities since I was a kid and, um, you know, since college, it's been a little bit of a more formal sort of consulting role and staying, you know, involved. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm so, we're so fortunate that my dad put these building blocks in place for us and it's just, it's up to us to sort of keep things stable. I mean, we're, you know, we are, my dad immigrated to the U S like we're going to be second generation of this business and a lot of businesses fail in the second generation. Um, so it's just us like trying to, to figure out that process and make sure that we can continue to sustain our families and also continue to create the impact that we want to create. What an incredible example, first of all, that your parents set for you guys, but a, a legacy for you and your siblings to leave to your children. That's so cool. I know you guys do a lot of really good work, so really, really cool hearing more about that. Um, I'm going to move to Leafless now, which I know is kind of a labor of love, um, but essentially you started this business, you and your partners started this business during the cannabis boom. What was that like? Yeah. So, so Mike Bologna and I, we started Greenline Partners, you know, first that was 2015 and, you know, Greenline, we kind of pulled together some capital to invest in the space as sort of a learning mechanism, you know, decided we wanted to get into cannabis and, um, just to go backwards a little bit, you know, growing up in the South, cannabis was demonized, drugs were demonized. And so, you know, I hadn't tried it until, you know, until after college in Chicago. And I finally, you know, got talked into trying cannabis and was like, why has this been demonized so much like I don't understand and I started doing research and you know I started enjoying consuming it and it started to help my anxiety and um then you know got we decided we wanted to get involved in the space invest as sort of a learning mechanism and very quickly I learned about all of the injustices of the war on drugs um and these things that I just you know had the privilege of not knowing about um very deeply and you know I found quickly like 
that is crucial if you're going to be involved in the cannabis industry to be involved in drug policy reform and you know getting people out of jail for this plant um you know the and considering that the laws were so disproportionately enforced by race like there's just so many aspects of it that made me sick so you know early we invested and tried a bunch of things and leafless being one of those and i'll dig into that but um it wasn't long before I cared more about the policy and the criminal justice than the business. Um, not the best thing for the bottom line, but um, definitely, you know, just where it feels like we can have the most impact. Mm-hmm. And very true to who you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just it's the right right thing. I don't know. Like, I just feel uniquely qualified based on my experience in, in cannabis and now further in drug policy and criminal justice to make a difference. And, you know, the same way, like, a random manager at an internship, you know, truly changed my life. Like, you know, even if our efforts change one life, like that goes a long way. And, uh, you know, Leaflist was an idea Mike and I had. We were, you know, when we first got into the industry, we just went to all the events we could go to, talk to anybody we could talk to, to learn everything. And we were just like really jazzed up about the industry. Everybody was, you know, we were pumped. And uh, we, we thought Leaflist could kind of bring all of that together as, you know, we didn't want to call it a LinkedIn of cannabis because we didn't love LinkedIn in terms of its functionality and how it truly functioned for networking. Like we felt like, you know, you don't know most of your connections. People randomly add you all the time. So we were, it was all about trust, being a, a trusted reputation management platform. So we were going to have ratings for businesses and ratings potentially for individuals, um, all based around like a point system on the platform. It was, you know, it was pretty complex and like, but Mike, Mike had had experience in software. I was always looking at starting some kind of software business because I just was fascinated by it. And so, you know, I think we we took a plunge on the early side and spent money on development and tried to make this thing happen. And it went through a variety of iterations, as you know. And, like, we eventually got something together that we, like, liked. But, we were, like, the biggest problem is we were, you know, I guess we're admitting it now. We weren't focused enough on Leafless specifically. And we... You know, we tried to hire someone to sort of do that for us, and that didn't really work. Um, and yet, it just like that was the point at which it's like, all right, we can either double down or we can cut the cord. And given all the other things we had going on, we we thought it was the economical choice to cut the cord. It makes sense, yeah. especially back then when everybody was in cannabis. Yeah, and I mean, like you know, that was like I said, like a really exciting time, and people were excited, but. You know, the people that got into the cannabis industry in 2015 these days are generally pretty jaded, <laughs> like myself, but um, it wasn't the sunshine and rainbows predicted. I mean, obviously, there's tons of cannabis sales going on. It's growing, but, like, many of the state's regulatory systems are a mess. Um, the big MSOs, the multi-state operators, have gobbled up a lot of the industry, and it's become – like, we knew getting in, like, hey, this is going to become corporate and cutthroat. we got to keep our eye out. You know, because originally the sort of base we first met was the kind of the altruistic base that was involved in drug policy. Like we would go to ArcView Network events run by Troy Dayton, who was the first employee of MPP and one of and the also founders. a podcast guest. A po- former podcast guest. Also one of the founders of SSDP, Students for Sensible Drug Policy and like in Marijuana Policy Project where I'm on the board. You know, I mentioned he's the first employee. And so he, Troy Dayton was the one that really opened my eyes to like the advocacy side. And so we, we knew, though, like, it's not always going to be like this, but, like, it was like a flip of a switch in terms of how quickly it became corporate. I think it was, like, the minute, you know, some of these companies were going public, and then at one point there was a big spike. And I think that might have been the moment where it was, like, 
oh, like <laughs> now people are motivated by this because they saw it could happen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I could talk about the cannabis industry all day and my perspective on it, but um, I'm glad that it got me engaged in drug policy reform. I really believe in the cannabis plant and its healing abilities. And I, you know, despite all the things that research is showing that it can do, I don't think we've even nearly tapped the surface. And, you know, hopefully cannabis will get descheduled. Maybe it'll get rescheduled as uh, HHS suggested. But um, regardless, research will open up and we're going to discover a lot more things. And um, there's incredible research coming out of Israel in terms of healing properties of cannabis. And so there's so much we don't know about this plant. And it's been, pol- for political reasons, demonized and discarded and not researched enough. And they've made, research has been so hard to do. And you've had to use this one grow from Mississippi where the cannabis is nothing like the cannabis that's on the market, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, so I still have a lot of faith in the industry. I got to work on drug policy and criminal justice reform because I feel like I have to, and I want to. And, um, but yeah, in terms of like investing in the cannabis business again, it would take like, it would take the very right thing. And certainly I still have irons in the fire, still have active investments in the space, but, um, yeah, I'm not rushing. And, you know, similarly to a developing industry, I'm not going to rush into the psychedelic space. I have, you know, one investment there, but, um, even on, on that one, even more so, you know, I think medicine is the number one top priority. And so my, my morals and ethics make it difficult for me to make any investment that I'm not sure serves that, you know, serves those ethics around making sure these substances are accessible in treatment you know, for treatment in thoughtful ways. Um, for sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And to your point, there is so much research. There, what is it, like hundreds of cannabinoids in just the cannabis plant alone. And it's like, we're using what? Like not even 10% of that. So yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of work to be done. Thanks for watching part one of this two-part episode of People Are the Answer. Join us next week for the conclusion. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are the Answer. If you enjoyed the episode, share it with friends and reviews or subscriptions on your favorite platforms go a long way to help the show grow. I want to share these incredible people and their remarkable work with as many others as possible. Thanks for your support. For more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com.